Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 9. If you don't, shame on you, you should have a Bible with you. Um, Mark will give you one. But we're going to be in Matthew 9. We're going to actually look at numerous other passages in this study this morning. Um, But I keep saying Matthew 9. Matthew 6, verse 9. And I know over the years, when we've done two services, folks have asked when it's a little bit more sparse, you know, what did the first service look like? Um, It looked just like this. I haven't seen it as crowded as it was this morning um, for a long time. So it was it was pretty crazy. Um, it is. I encourage people that there is a second service following immediately right after the first service. So we're going to be at again in the Lord's prayer this morning, you guys. Um, let me pray, and uh, we'll jump in. Father, where would we be? If we did not have your son, if he had not broken through the crust of our darkness, our lostness, Father, the fact that we were dead in sins and trespasses, not sick, but comatose spiritually in sin, and Lord, you have resurrected us spiritually by the Spirit of God through the gospel to the glory of Jesus. And now here we sit, alive in Christ. That is a phenomenal reality, Lord, that we are no longer people who are blind, who are deaf, who are dead in sins and trespasses. Now, Lord God, our hearts have been turned towards you, our ears hear you, our mouths praise you, our hearts love you, because of the sovereign grace of the Spirit of God has regenerated us and made us new. Oh, Father, what an incredible reality that we see things rightly because of what you've done. So I ask you, Father, afresh, would you teach us to pray? Would you instruct us, Lord God, of what our prayer lives should be, could be, And Father, give us a hunger to be a praying people, to want to know our God and to walk in communion with you, Lord. God, I love this church. I love the body here. I thank you for them. I thank you so much for the friendships and the camaraderie. Father, there's so much work in our lives individually that is needed. So I pray, Father, even in this short study this morning, This would help us, God. This would change us. We'd be a different people because of the time spent here. And I ask this again in your son's name. Amen. I had no idea how selfish I was until I got a girlfriend. And then I married the girlfriend. And had no idea how selfish I was until I lived a life in marriage and found out, wow, I really am a selfish guy. Then we went into ministry, a life of trying to serve a local church together, and I thought, wow, I thought I was a selfish guy. Now I know I'm a selfish guy. And then these little masons showed up, 
And I thought, wow, these lives are fully and utterly dependent upon us, and I want to go play somewhere. But I can't. And God once again revealed the selfishness of my heart. And day after day, year after year, you know, month after month, the Lord kindly and gently, sometimes strongly, reveals who we are and some of the depths of our depravity, some of the depths of our sin. I don't know about you guys, but the longer I'm a a Christian, the more I'm studying the Word, the more I'm in the presence of other believers, the more God kindly shows me a mirror and says, now, Dan, do you see? You see, I'm still at work. I'm still doing, I'm, st- I'm still at work in you. And you still need a lot of work. <laughs> I am blown away by the work of the Lord, how he transforms us. How he makes us a new people. It's hard to sum up. To say it. You know, I say a new makes us a new people, and then I want to work into all the details how. You know how. Most of you, I think, know how. So let me kind of put the capstone on it. I think this kind of funnels down to every other category of life. What's happening in our lives as Christians is we are moving, being moved from a man centered perspective to a God centered perspective. Prior to Christ, the the heart is, what makes me happy? What satisfies me? What what can grant me full satisfaction? What in this world would allow me to have that? What makes me feel good? Even charity for the unsaved is to make them feel good, ultimately. It is not pleasing to the Lord apart from faith, the Scripture says. So, Lord, what are you doing in me? What he's doing is he's making Dan Mason live more and more with a perspective of what does God think? And I'm boiling it down as much as I can. Okay, but what does God think about it? What does God think about my my motive in that practice? What does God think about my, my expense on that item? What does God think about my time in that in that category of life? Is God pleased with this, not pleased with this? What's his word say about that? That's a question we ask continually as we mature as Christians. We say, well, what does his word say about that? Sometimes people don't even say, what does God say about it? They say, what does it say about it? It drives me crazy. It is him. What does he say about it? Because I, it's not just that there's a rule book. What is it? No, what does he say about it? What does the living God say about it? Am I offensive to him? And yet the Lord in... Awesome grace, slowly but surely, daily, chipping away, making me a new guy. I see things differently. I have not reached perfection in any way, shape, or form. If anything, the more I'm seeing from God's perspective, the more I see how much I don't see from God's perspective. It's like a, one of my Sunday school teachers taught when I was in first grade. The more I know, the more I know I need to know. The more I get a, an insight, the more I go, wow, I've, I've got so much room for growth. But I really do believe, you guys, that you could sum it up in that we are going from a me-centered life to a God-centered life. And that would funnel down into so many different categories. My marriage is about him. My kids are about him. My life is about him. My job is about him. This is why Jesus said, come after me. 
deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's not about you. You're taking up your cross. You're dying. Wouldn't that be interesting if that was some way somebody shared the gospel with a person? So what does it mean to come after Christ? Well, you die. That's what happens. You die. Christ is alive. You're done. No more Roger. No more Dan. No more Richard. No, you're, you're done. And now it's me. And so why would we be so surprised that when Jesus is with his disciples and he says, when you pray, pray like this, the first thing he talks about is not us. The first thing he talks about is the glory of God. So if you look there, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next petition, give us. Again, I'm not, I'm not pitting these against each other. I'm not saying this second half is bad, the first half is good. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the second half is there to serve the first half. The giving is for the purpose of the hallowing. The giving is the purpose of the making much of his name, of revering him. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. I want my prayer life to be a God-centered prayer life. Now, again, I know that you may have a passage of Scripture in your mind. In particular, one that keeps coming to me is, um, cast your cares on Him, for He cares for you. There's nothing that we don't go to Him for. That's not my point. My point is there's something that is happening inside the Christian that alters what we go to Him with. What is of greater value to you, your comfort or his glory? What is of greater value to you, your financial stability or his glory? Would it be too hard if I were to say our prayer lives would reveal the answer to the questions? How much prayer is spent for the purpose of, I want you to be glorified, Father. And how much prayer is spent, I want more ease. That's way too convicting, so let's move forward past that. What, what have we covered thus far? Our Father who's in heaven, intimacy with God alongside a deep reverence for him. They are not at odds with one another. They are perfectly connected with each other. Unfortunately, in Christianity, and I hear this sometimes, people say, well, we've become so dopey in our Christianity because we think that being lax and being flippant is intimate. So with God, we treat him loosely because we know him so well. That's a, that's a false dichotomy when somebody comes and says, you can't have reverence and intimacy. No, of course you can't. Beloved, think about this, okay? Think about your Bible. Every time someone comes in contact with God, are they less or more reverent before him? And yet more intimacy. Moses and Abraham, Moses is standing before God himself. God himself is speaking to Moses, and yet take your sandals off because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. Abraham speaks to him in, in this wonderful, intimate way, even pleading with him for Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, you can't do this, you're just, you're righteous. But nowhere in the text do you see him become flippant. 
And so here, that's the title or the the address, rather, of this prayer, our Father in heaven. Yes, he is my Father. I've been adopted by the Father through the Son into the family of God, and I am a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That's the truth. But in no way does that diminish my reverence for him. If anything, it makes it far greater. Intimacy and reverence are there in that address. And then that first petition, hallowed be thy name, that God's name would be set apart as holy everywhere. I think it's interesting when we say that we want to set apart God's name as holy. You hear God's name uses a swear word in our world or whatever. And you hear that and you say, well, they don't know. They're not saved. Only the saved would revere his name because they know him for who he is. But then you come to the Psalms and you see the psalmist pleading and begging to the Lord, let the nations cry out. Let the, let the whole earth declare his glory. And so this is not a, okay, in our little church building, it's okay to, to revere him, to hallow his name inside these little walls at Pacific Coast Bible Church, but out there there's no pressure. No, the scripture says, of course there's pressure. We're not in here believing a lie, we're in here believing the truth. And this truth is true for us, and it's true for every unbeliever out there. They owe him glory. Now that may not compute with your next door neighbor, or with your relative, or with your your co-worker that you say, you owe him the glory. But beloved, the fact is, they owe him the glory. Every human being must praise the name, and we're told that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every knee will bend before him. And so his name is being hallowed more and more and will be hallowed eternally. Well, isn't it fascinating that the first prayer, the first petition that God in the flesh gives to humans is, I want you to pray for my glory. The glory of God is the most important thing to God. And the glory of God must progressively be the most important thing to us. That we would have a hunger for his glory. That when we see him glorified, it makes us happy. Makes us joyful to see that happen. So look at the next petition. Fascinating wording. Your kingdom come. Remember, this is the always called the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the disciples' prayer. Jesus did not pray this prayer in the sense that he did not confess his sins and his trespasses, didn't didn't have to ask for forgiveness, but he's instructing his disciples to pray this prayer because they do. So here is a prayer that God wants you and I to pray. And just doing a little bit of groundwork like we did a couple weeks ago, guys, don't forget, this is not a, a prayer given simply for repetition. The reason I say that is sometimes between believers, you'll hear a, a, divi- a division here, right? You'll hear somebody say, there's nothing wrong with saying it over and over and over again. And then you'll hear others saying, no, all that's going to do is re- be repetitive and, and you'll dis, you know, disengage your brain and just say it. That You can't do that. I'm in the middle, as usual, getting shot from both ends where I would say, of course, you you have a fool's errand to argue that it's wrong to pray this specific prayer word for word because it's the scripture. But I think it's a fool's errand to say that that's what it was intended for. I believe this was given by Christ to the disciples as pillars of a foundation of what their prayer life should look like. Spread it out a bit. There's more to be said here. But these are, if you will, an outline for a prayer life. So if you were to ask the question, God, what do you want my prayer life to involve? I want you to pray for my glory. 
I want you to pray for my kingdom. I want you to pray that my will is done. I want you to come to me and ask for your daily needs, and so on and so forth. This is not simply a prayer of repetition, but I would never get down on anybody who wanted to say this prayer specifically before the Lord from their heart, word for word. I think that'd be silly to be against that. So this pillar that we're at now, this second petition, your kingdom come. If you would, give me a one-word answer. What comes to your mind when you hear the word kingdom? Raj. Okay. Lloyd. What's that? Heaven. Mitch. Kingdom. Omniscience. Uh, who else I want to pick on this morning? Right. Yeah, Mary Ellen. Jesus. When I was in junior high and I heard the word kingdom, I thought of a castle. Uh, you know, no dragons, but I thought of a castle and a moat and a drawbridge and horses. And because when you watch a movie, when I heard the word kingdom, I thought of you know old uh, movies where there's the the king. And his kingdom, that's where he lives. Well, that has nothing to do necessarily with what's being said here. It's not a location. So here's what we need to get out of our minds. This is not a geographical location that we're speaking of when we say the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God um, is not necessarily a geographical location. Here's what we should have between our ears whenever we read kingdom. And I mean the word kingdom in the scripture is this. The rule of God, the reign of God, where God is in charge, the empire of God, where anywhere that Christ is ruling and reigning as king is the kingdom. We, we make a huge mistake when we say the kingdom is only this particular location or that particular location. The kingdom of God is where God is reigning. Turn with me to John um, 18, 36. John 18, 36. <clears throat> Let me make sure it's the right verse. And it is. Let's start at verse 35. So John 18, verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world or of the world. This is so fascinating, is it? Verse 37, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. Well, then what's the kingdom? If it's everywhere he reigns, 
but it's not necessarily of this world. There's not a geographical location where we can say, boom, there's his kingdom. Then where is his kingdom? How is it coming? Because, beloved, and I, I mean this wholeheartedly, the more I study this prayer, the more I am just, it's pressed so deep into my mind what I have not been praying that's in this prayer. <clears throat> How is the kingdom coming? Because I, Dan Mason, am supposed to be in prayer asking for the kingdom to come. So how is this kingdom coming? The kingdom of God must be, and that word must is huge, must be understood in an already not yet sense. Now, anytime, if you read any kind of literature on eschatology, end times, a study of end times, you will see most theologians, in my opinion, the best theologians, talk about an already not yet category of the kingdom. Because the kingdom has begun. Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is at hand. We hear that in the ministry of Christ and John the Baptist. So the ministry is starting. Christ is reigning presently and will reign eternally in the future. God is reigning presently, but there will be a culmination and eternal reign in the future. So there's an already not yet category to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Um, reason I'm trying to divide or, or draw straight lines through this, you guys, is because there is so much um, theological mud that makes things very tricky when people start talking about the kingdom. And, and there's some very kooky things that have been said over the years about, about the kingdom of God. And um, I'm just trying to be careful to draw a straight line that is at least clear. I'm not saying I've dotted every I and crossed every T eschatologically. I have not by any way, shape, or form. But this concept of the kingdom must be taken in an already yet, already not yet sense. So let's talk about the already first. How is the kingdom of God present? Where's the kingdom of God right now? Jesus Christ is reigning in the hearts of the Christians individually, right now. Christ Jesus reigns supreme as king in the hearts of all those who have been born again. I'm not negating the struggle that we have with sin, so on and so forth, but nonetheless, we've been born again to a living hope. He is king and Lord. I believe that with all my heart. I'm seeking for my life to walk in obedience to that truth, but I believe that with all my heart. He is my King and my Lord. So Christ is reigning in the hearts of individual Christians today, this second, in this room. Christ is reigning in the church corporately. Now, when I say church, please notice that I'm using big C, meaning every single believer. Um... Christ is not reigning in every building where a bunch of people meet and hang the word church above their building. But nonetheless, Christ is reigning in his church. When Raj and I go to uh, Lodwar, Kenya, we go over there, and guess what we found? Jesus reigning in the lives of local churches, in the lives of local ministers, in the lives of saints. On the other end of the world, Jesus Christ's kingdom exists. You go, wow, I had no idea. He's even got authority over here. (laughs) He's ruling and reigning all over the place. I thought it was just Pacific City. Now he's all over the place in charge. 
Christ is reigning in heaven already. As we're going to see, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is the prayer that is prayed here. Now, at this point, here's what... um, How do I put this? Here's the sandpaper in Christianity at times between believers. Is I am thoroughly convinced Jesus Christ is working all things according to His will. That's a real controversial statement with good friends of mine that would say that they'd look around and go, really? In this place? Really? But our theology is not designed by that which we see with our eyes. It's designed by that which we know from the Word of God. And so I come to the Word of God and I say, okay, Lord, from your Word, you tell me, who's in charge of this world? Not is there sin in this world, we're all agreed. Not is there disobedience in this world, we're all agreed. But Lord, what does your word say in reference to who's really in sovereign control of all things? Let me just give you a few verses to kind of tack some thoughts onto. Matthew 28. I think this is a theological anchor for our understanding of what's happening around us this morning in this world. And let me just say on a personal note what I'm about to preach here and say from these passages. I do not mean to share this with a sense of controversy. That's not what's in my heart, be very, very honest with you. There are very few things that have brought greater comfort to my soul than the reality of God's sovereignty. They're in the midst of everybody in the room saying, I don't know what God's doing. This truth rushes to the rescue that I don't know what God's doing, but I know He's doing. And so the sovereignty of God is not, a, it's not, a, it's not an argument thing. It's not a, something to bat back and forth for theological fun. Beloved, I believe this is the greatest balm for the wounds of this life, to see the sovereignty of God in all things. So listen to what we hear from the Bible. Verse 16 of 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when Jesus saw them, saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth, what's the next word? Has, past tense, has been given to me. John 17. Now this... This one is potent, powerful. John 17, verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him, have given, past tense, you have given him authority over all flesh. Not just believers, believers, unbelievers, over all flesh. You've given authority to the Son. Why? To give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Romans 8.28. You should probably have that by memory, I would think. 
God is working all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Beloved, can I just ask the question that we all know the answer? How does he work all things together for good if he's not in sovereign control over all things? That doesn't compute. If he's working all things, now again, it doesn't mean all things are good. There's evil, there's sin in this world, so on and so forth. I believe that with all my heart. But he is working them together for our good. And then lastly, Ephesians 1.11. Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Okay, so there's some foundational verses. Write them down, memorize them, have it clear, and then go back and read your Bible leather to leather and ask the question, is God in control of the doings of people? Look at the life of Jonah. Look at the life of Job. Look at the lives of these Old Testament saints. Then come to the New Testament, where the apostles tells the people, you were doing exactly that which the Lord had prepared to be done in reference to the death of Jesus Christ. And then I think the the massive cherry on top to show the sovereignty of God over all things is look at the messianic fulfillments, the prophecies of Christ, and how absolutely precise and perfect they were fulfilled. And you tell me there's not a sovereign God in charge of all things. Some of the precision of the messianic prophecies is jaw-dropping when you think of all that had to line up perfectly in place for that to happen. So then I ask the question, so then is Jesus Christ ruling and reigning? The answer, of course he is. That's why we find ourselves at ease in the middle of cancer at times. That's why when we've got a a friend or one of our kids is falling from where we want them to be, we can find rest in our soul that somebody's in sovereign control. That's why when when the Lord takes a life of a loved one, we can say God is still in control of that. Beloved, the sovereignty of God rushes to our rescue in our deepest of pain. It is not a theological thing to say simply for the purpose of bickering. It is God coming to us with the tenderest of motives and the most tender arms wrapping around us saying, I am with you in the midst of your pain. And I have a sovereign good purpose in it. We have got to get the already before we spend the time on the not yet of the kingdom of God. Years ago, Marianne told me, she said, just take advantage of the planes as a dramatic pause. (laughs) And yet it throws me off course so many times. Now, there's the not yet, of course. I look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I look forward to the full-blown reign where we see all the enemies of the Lord dealt with, done, We are granted our new bodies. We are there at the resurrection. We're in his presence where he rules and reigns 
perfectly for all eternity. See, the kingdom is not something that just pops up. It's something that moves. We're moving more and more into the kingdom. That's not just me saying that. Let me show you why I say that. Um, Hang on one sec. If you would, go with me to Matthew chapter 13. I messed up this reference in the first service, so let me make sure before I call it out. I think it's 1331 is where I was trying to go. Hey, look at that, it was. Matthew 13, verse 31. Now, what I'm saying here is that this this concept of the kingdom is not that it's something that just, poof, shows up. There's, There's more going on here. There's more going on here. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst, when Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand, Remember, the ruling and reigning of Christ is at hand right now. Listen to what he says about the kingdom of God in verse 31 of chapter, eight, uh, chapter 13. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So we ask this question, how is this kingdom coming? We're asking the question, right? We're moving towards, we're going to end up at that great consummation of the return of the Lord Jesus and his ruling and reigning. But presently, presently, we're asking this question, what's happening with the kingdom of God? We're told here, the kingdom of God is like some guy, take a farmer, and the farmer grabs this tiny little mustard seed, plops it in the ground, covers it up, waters it, and all of a sudden this dinky little shoot comes up, and just keeps watering it, keeps watering it, keeps watering it, and all of a sudden this massive tree and all the birds are resting on the branches. Okay, so very simple, you guys. Tiny, huge. Tiny, huge. Second parable, very simple. The lady takes the leaven, works a little bit of leaven into the dough, gives it some time, it works into the dough, it permeates the dough. The kingdom starts small, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing. Jesus has 12 disciples. One of them stabs him in the back, hangs himself, and he's in hell. Then there's 11. The 11 hang tight. Yeah, they, they flee from him, but eventually they regroup, and the Lord is very gracious and restores them. And that 11 starts telling some people what happened about Jesus, and it keeps growing and growing and growing. And now we look at the missionary endeavor from Jesus Christ and his disciples to Pacific City, to Lodwar, Kenya. Beloved, don't you see, that? that is a miraculous feat that is just blows us away when we go, has the church of Jesus Christ really started in that tiny little subgroup of Jesus and his disciples, and now to the other end of the world, we can go and find people who believe and love the same Savior that I do. That leaven of the kingdom is permeating this entire world right now. That little seed of the kingdom is massive. And Almighty God, His reign continues to grow. Now, is He in charge over all things? Yes. 
But in a sense, his ruling and reigning is growing more and more every time somebody comes to Jesus Christ and says, he is my Lord and my master and I want to serve him. So here's a question I want to pose to you now. This is a question that folks may pose to me based on what I've said thus far. Why are you called to pray for the inevitable outcome of the universe? I think it's a fair question, really, when somebody goes, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, Dan, you're telling me God's in charge of all things, God is moving things towards an end, God is going to, the kingdom's going to come, he's going to return, all that is said that that's going to happen. Why on earth are you wasting time, quote unquote, praying for the inevitable? I'm glad you asked. The Lord does accomplish his great purposes through the prayers of his redeemed people. God accomplishes much through the prayers of his people. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. I think it gets a little slippery when you hear somebody who's so heavy on the sovereignty of God that they would say that God doesn't use our prayers to accomplish his purpose. Of course he accomplishes his purposes through our prayers. Just read the Bible. You'll see it all over the place. How does all that work together? I don't know. Ask Lloyd. But it does work perfectly together. Sorry, Lloyd, you're the one that I saw. There is mystery here. I own that and happily own that. But his sovereignty doesn't cancel out our prayers. And our prayers don't cancel out his sovereignty. They're not at odds with one another. Praying for this brings exceeding great comfort to the believer. You ever had somebody in your life that doesn't know Christ, maybe even really at odds with the Lord, just angry at him or something like that, and you go, man, what do we do with this individual? We pray. Why would we pray? Because God's the one who's sovereign over their salvation, not us. Please notice that, guys. Don't let that slip by too quickly. The prayer for the kingdom to come is the prayer of salvation for people. Why are we going to God for for the salvation of people if it's not God doing the work of salvation in the lives of people? You, you, mean, you, kept, you saw, hear what I'm saying? Track with me. Meaning it's not you and me doing the convincing of people who are dead in sins and trespasses. It's us preaching the gospel with utter dependency on the Spirit of God to do the work of regeneration. Hmm. <clears throat> so Christ is reigning, absolutely, and he's called us to be in prayer, asking for more and more of his kingdom coming. It is always biblical to pray back God's truth to him. Simply put, it is the pattern and model that Jesus gave for our prayer lives. Therefore, this is God's best for us, and we can trust him in praying for it. God knows what he's doing, and he knows why he gave us this as a category of our prayer lives. And so I pose a question to you just to consider How much of your prayer life has been, Father, I want to see you have greater reign in the lives of unsaved people in my life right now? That's one category. Okay, second category. Father, I want want to see greater reign of you in my life. I want more obedience in my life. I, I want to be under this kingdom with joy, and I want more of my life to reflect the joy of being under your kingship. Not, well, I can't. Why? Well, I'm a Christian. You know? Not that. But I I get to be, I get to because I want to. 
Jesus didn't just give me the have to, he gave me the want to. It's not just there's the rule, do the rule. It's there's the rule and love the rule. Because you love the one who gave the rule. And the one who loves you gave the rule because he knows what's best for you. It's so much like parenting, is it not? I don't want to do that. Well, honey, it's the best thing for you. I still don't want to do it. Okay, but if you do it, you will find joy. No. Then they eventually do it and they go, glad I thought of that. (laughs) My dad gets smarter every year as I walk in obedience to what he told me to do when I was 17. The more we walk in obedience to the Lord, the more we go, wow, my God knows me in a way that I never fathomed he knew me. He knows. He, he, this whole time where I thought I knew better than God, he patiently waited me out. And now he's allowed me to see the sweetness of obedience. So God-centered prayer life, starting with God, I want you to be glorified. That we say, our Father in heaven, he is my Father who I revere. I want his name to be hallowed. Well, how would his name be hallowed? It would be hallowed by his reign, moving and moving and moving in the lives of people. So, before I bring you to the table, I have this question, or rather this point, to just bring to your attention to kind of uh, close this, close this, this time. And guys, as I say it, it's kind of anticlimactic because it's like Christianity 101. Let me just own that from the get-go. You will probably all have a no-duh answer for me when I say this, but it is, it's pressed deep into my heart lately. And I wonder if we forget it. Here you go. All Christians are missionaries. All Christians are missionaries. Now, I don't mean that all of us are packing up and taking off for Paraguay. <clears throat> Some of us may, if, depending on the calling of God. But the calling for all of us to be a missionary, that never went away. That never diminished. If you are in Christ, the mission is on you. And what's the mission? I want to see the reign of Jesus. See, this is what's so interesting, is that the prayers that he gives us here should not just be something we say, but something we want to walk in obedience to. So the action comes with the praying. They're not at odds with one another. It's not, well, I guess all we have left to do is pray. Well, no, you, you, you pray before the Lord, but then you step into action, into obedience to what you're praying for. So, Father, I want to see your kingdom come. Really? Did you share your faith? Have you shared your faith? I don't mean in a pushy jerk way. I just mean like, are you open when somebody says, so what are you doing Sunday mornings? Because you're never available to go shooting. <laughs> well, um, I, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm, I meet with other Christians. And what do you do? Well, we talk about God and stuff. And, <laughs> you know, um, that's where my life is. And do you have that level of when you're bumped, Jesus spills out and you're excited for that? You're a missionary. And you go, well, where am I a missionary? Cloverdale, Salem. You are a missionary where the Lord has you. Again, this is what's so interesting. They're cliches because they're true. You know the classic cliche, bloom where you're planted? You know why that's kind of dopey? Because it's absolutely true, and we've heard it so many times, because it is the truth. Bloom where you're planted. God has you there for a reason. The kingdom of God may spread further in your neighborhood because of you. Now, you know what I mean, God using you. 
You are a missionary to this world. And I'll give you an illustration that convicts me to the core, and then I'll bring you to the table. Imagine, and I may have given this illustration before. If so, don't tell me. Imagine 15 soldiers are sent into a city, and the general says, I want you to go into the city and take the city. All right? You go in there. It's enemy territory. You go in and you take that city. I want you to take control of it and you take out any soldiers that are there that are holding it. Okay, yes, sir. Boom, gone. General goes, I have not heard back from those guys for five days. What is going on? Well, we'll wait. We'll give them some more time. So he waits another five days. Then general goes, okay, this is getting ridiculous. We're looking at two weeks now. I'm going to go see what these men are doing. I gave them a mission, a task at hand, and all that they needed to accomplish the mission, and I haven't heard from them for two weeks. General comes into the city, and he sees that all 15 men hired themselves, and now they own a little piece of property. They have their cows. They're milking their cows. Now they're engaged in some relationships with women that lived in that city. They enjoy the blessings of the city, And the general sets foot and he goes, what are you doing? And all 15 to a man say, we have never been more at ease in our life. We've got money. We've got care. We have the most comfort we've ever had. We love this city. And we will completely disregard the mission for which we were sent here. I'm afraid at times, beloved, for myself that the comforts this world has provided has enabled me to be at complete ease to the point that my mission is disregarded. So don't just let this be your prayer life. Let this be your life. The general will return. He has you on mission. And though at times, yes, there may be some pleasures and some joys in this life that are not bad, please don't miss me on that, that are not bad, they're they're gifts from him, don't ever let that rob you of the doing of the mission he's called you to do. So that way, as I pray, Father, I want your kingdom to come. Along with that prayer is my mouth, my feet, my hands, Lord, I want to help bring in your kingdom. Father God, as we come to the table this morning, God, I don't know how... There are times so often where I misread my own priorities... And I have put something in your place, Lord God, or or something in the place of what you've called me to do in this life. Jesus, I, I want to be more God-centered. I want to raise my kids the way that you want me to. I want to be a husband that is a husband for the sake of your name. 
I want to serve this body, Lord, in a way that is biblical, that, that is from you. And I find myself in the way so often. So, Father, I pray that you would reign in me in an even greater capacity. I pray that you would reign in this local church in a greater capacity, Lord. That my selfish wants and pleasures would not come first. But they would stop. They would stop when they come at odds with you, Lord. I want to see your kingdom come in Pacific City, individual by individual, Father. Ultimately resulting in actually seeing you face to face, where my faith becomes truly sight. And I handle, I hug Jesus. So, Father, may your kingdom come. I know it is. I'm excited for it to come, Father, in so many of the ways that it is coming. And I pray, Lord God, that you would come quickly to return for your bride. You would take us to yourself. Every tongue confess, every knee bow. Father, that we would see rightly, you are truly the Lord in all other things. Every created thing bows before you and your kingship. So, Father, as we do take these elements, I pray that as we do it in remembrance of you and in remembrance of your death on the cross, that, dear God, um, we would see that that day where God in the flesh was on a tree suffering while people watched and laughed. Lord, you were bringing in this glorious kingdom. And the will of the Father was being done in the death of the Son to redeem a people for his name. And God, by grace, we're the people. So help us to taste the sweetness of this time of communion, Lord, both physically but spiritually, taste the sweetness of our salvation. And it is in your Son's name I pray. Amen.